kind of contagious, isn't it? And it's just in his face and in his actions and um, just displaying his joy in the Lord. And, and really that's what it's all about, isn't it? Um, it's about, it's, it's interesting because all Darren's joy came from something that God did for his dad. And uh, I think about, I think when, when Darren was telling his testimony, the uh, John chapter 11 came to my mind when, when the Lord speaks to Mary and Martha and her, their brother had just died and he'd been dead for four days and, and, Jesus, and the Lord says to them, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And I just think, you know, their family saw the glory of God. And it's not beyond God to do things like that, is it? He, he's still very capable. And you might have something in your family right now that you just think, there's just no way. There's just no hope for this person or that person. Uh, Darren's testimony and Mary and Martha's testimony tell me that that is, an, that is, a, a, that is a lie, that there is always hope. And uh, when we doubt the most, um, it's when God can really shine through. And so what a, what a blessing that testimony was. And, and I pray that God will meet with us today in a special way and uh, we'll see his glory as we've not seen it before. First John chapter number three. Uh, I just want to say a few words in, in passing about next week. Next week is a very full day. We're going to start 8.30 in the morning, Sunday morning uh, prayer breakfast over at the, the education building. You're all welcome to come. We've had some ladies volunteer to, to, um, to take the kids aside and so that, so that men and ladies can come and, and pray together. And as I mentioned last week, um, the movement of the Lord historically and biblically has always been associated with a corporate, corporate prayer and uh, reaching out and touching the hem of our God's garments and watching him do things. So 8.30 next week, we'll have breakfast there, um, something for everybody to eat, and then we'll spend about 30 minutes praying together. Also next week after the service, there'll be a short meeting to uh, begin to develop some things for next year's VBS. So if you're interested in participating in that, please um, come to that meeting immediately following next week's services. And then Sunday night, we climax with a fellowship um, for the First Brooks. And uh, we are going to come together and eat pie, right? Desserts. Does anybody in here like pie? All right. That's what we know you do. Um, we're going to come together in fellowship. And uh, I wasn't here during that season, obviously. But what the Lord, what, what I have heard, how the Lord used Ron in this role right here was pretty spe spectacular. And uh, it's not any praise to Ron. And he doesn't want any praise, but he knows that he's pointing that praise right up to the Lord. If there's one thing I like about Ron is he's good at deferring praise, isn't he? And uh, he puts it right where it belongs. And so, so next Sunday night, we're going to have an opportunity to come together to celebrate their family. There'll be a basket there where you can put cards of encouragement. And if you'd like to give them a um, monetary gift of any kind, then that will be an opportunity to do that as well. And um, just really to say thank you and how much you appreciate them. And so please make yourself available for that and come and enjoy the fellowship and just getting to know your church family. Can you guys, can you look around this auditorium this morning, and can anybody raise their hand and say that they know everybody in here? 
Can anybody, can anybody raise your hand and say that? So we need to start working on that. And these are the kinds of, these are the kind, kinds of things, right? We're a family. These are the kind of things that promote that and getting to know each other. And so uh, next Sunday night will be a great opportunity for that. First John chapter number three, um, I encourage you to come back this week if you came last week because we're going to conclude last week's sermon. And the excitement that, that came as a result of that has made me very nervous. <laughs> you know, kind of the, the pressure, everybody's like, we're so excited about hearing this morning's message. And I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> you know, so, um, but uh, I pray that God will use this, um, this truth. It, it's, it's what it is. It's a truth from God's word and that he'll use it to penetrate your heart, um, to cause there to be some evaluation personally, and, uh, and, and maybe perhaps some salvation. And that really is the, the ultimate, the, the goal of this text should be twofold. One is those who are truly believers to just be confirmed, and those who are, are false converts, that they, but they come to know that, and they come to deal with the fact that they're lost and, um, you know, kneel before the Lord and Savior and get saved. Amen? Nobody wants to stand before him one day as they did in Matthew 7 and say, Lord, look at all that we've done in your name. And the Lord will say to them, I never knew you. And none of us want to experience that moment. But um, as I mentioned last week, there will be many who are not in heaven who you would expect to be there. And there will be many who are in heaven that you didn't expect to be there. And what's important is that you do your evaluation of your heart and find out where you are at spiritually so that you know that your relationship with God is what it ought to be. So let's read, if you would, follow along with me in 1 John chapter number 4. The Bible says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that, we, that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And if you want to underline something in your Bible, this is a good phrase to underline. The idea of seeing and knowing the Lord, is, it's a salvific statement. In other words, what John is saying is, is those who continue in sin have never been saved. Uh, they've not seen the Lord or known the Lord. And let me put a little um, explanation there. They haven't seen the Lord or known the Lord rightly. We all have a perception of God, don't we? We all have um, made up, uh, many of us have made up a God after our own imaginations or after our own likings. This is describing the fact that, that to have a, a proper understanding of who God is, have a proper knowledge of God, will lead to people not living in a habitual lifestyle of sin, okay? He says, um, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, and whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident. And verse 10 is, I'm going to stop there before I read the rest of verse 10, is a, a key explanation of the, of the previous verses. 
It is by this, by what? By those who practice sin versus those who practice righteousness. By this, it becomes evident. It becomes obvious, if you will, those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Now, again, I'm going to stop here and I'm going to say this. Is it not difficult in this day and age today to discern those who are children of God and discern those who are not children of God? Is that not a difficulty? Uh, it shouldn't be. But, but it has become, and the reason why it has become so difficult to discern those who are God's children and those who are the children of the devil is that we've watered down the gospel. We've watered down what it really means to be a Christian. Uh, being a Christian, if you just take the word at, for its definition, it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So if somebody says, I'm a Christian, and they're not following Jesus Christ, they don't understand what it means to be a Christian. It should not be difficult to determine whether or not somebody is a follower of Jesus Christ or somebody is a follower of self, of sin, uh, whatever it might be. That shouldn't be difficult, but, but what's happened is, is, is being a Christian is no longer about being a follower of Jesus Christ, but being a Christian has now become more about uh, going to church on Sunday or doing your weekly duty to the Lord or whatever might be the case. The, the disciples were called, Jesus was called their rabbi, which literally meant that they, that they walked in his footsteps, that their feet bore the dust from his feet. Okay, so as he walked, he would kick up this dirt. This is not right? only how we know if we're children of God or if we're children of the devil, but this is how we can also um, judge uh, let me use a better word, discern whether or not other people are children of God or children of the devil. He says, um, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he gives a practical, uh, two, basic, two basic teachings that define Christianity. One is those who practice righteousness, and the other one is those who love their brother. And they're different. They're not the same. Some would say that this is just an explanation of practicing righteousness, but it's not. It would be a part of it. You could obviously lump them together, but they are separate. Practicing righteousness and loving your brother are two separate things within the context of Scripture in the book of 1 John. Now, the error that's being refuted here in, in this book is the error of Gnosticism and antinomianism. And both of these systems, these um, doctrines held to the idea that because we are saved and because of the grace of God, we can live and do whatever we want to do, right? Okay, go with me, take your Bible, keep one finger in 1 John and go with me to Romans. Chapter 6. And I'm going to ask that you bear with me today. I know we have the Lord's Supper, but I, we might go a little bit longer than we normally do um, because of our starting point, and, and that's fine. If you do need to leave at any point in time, please do not be offended. You're not going to offend us. If you need to go, we understand. But if I go a little bit over this morning, I want to get through this. I know a lot of you came this morning to hear the conclusion of this sermon. I want to be able to get through that, okay? Listen to what he says in, in Romans chapter number uh, five at the very end. The, the, the uh, Romans chapter number five is all about God's righteousness or Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. In other words, by one man's righteousness, many are made righteous. 
So the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It means it's a gift. It's been given to us as a free gift. It, base, it, it, it has no basis on anything that you have done. You haven't become worthy of Christ's righteousness. You haven't done anything to earn it or deserve it. Christ has given you freely his righteousness, and as a result of having his righteousness, you then are righteous. Does that make sense? You then do righteousnesses as well because you have Christ's righteousness. That's what Romans chapter number 5 is all about. Those who have been gifted with the righteousness of Christ or, or his righteousness being credited to their account will live righteous. Now watch what he says here in verse 1 of chapter number 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, because grace is there and grace says that I am saved based solely on the merits of Jesus Christ, amen, I'm saved based solely on the merits of Jesus Christ and his works, what he has accomplished on my behalf. That's the basis of my salvation. Now, should my attitude be that now I'm going to just continue in sin so that that grace might be seen as great? Should I just continue in sin to magnify and manifest the free grace that God has given me? And here's what Paul's answer to that question is. He says, by no means. It's the strongest negative in the Greek language. It literally means, may it never be so. May you not even think this way. To even ask this question, Paul, Paul implies in the next few verses, perhaps you don't even understand the grace of God. Maybe you don't understand what grace looks like if your attitude towards grace is, is that, hey, you know what? I've been saved. God's grace has been put on me, has nothing to do with what I have done. So therefore, I can go out and live however I want. And Paul implies in, in Romans 6, in the first five verses, he says, you don't even understand grace. If your attitude towards grace is something that you have, have gotten so that you can do whatever you want, you are, you've confused grace and what it really is. And he says in chapter 6, he goes on to say, How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know? Okay, you can underline that. Do you not know? In other words, there's a lack of understanding here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, what Paul says is, don't you understand, don't you comprehend that you died with Christ, that his death was your death, that, you, that his resurrection was your resurrection, that his new life is your new life, and that that, that changes you. You're not who you used to be before because Christ has come to make residence within you. His righteousness is your righteousness, and you are, what does he say in Romans 6? You are dead. You are dead. And now Christ, Paul, uh, Paul says it very well, Galatians 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live. Paul was like surprised. I'm dead, but yet I'm alive. Nevertheless, it is not I who live, but what? But Christ who lives in me. See, that's the transformation that takes place. So we go back to our text here. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
Now, there are several observations that we we're going to go through this morning from this text to help us understand why it is that a true Christian will not continue a lifestyle of sin. We're going to see why that is. So some observations from our text. Number one is this is a universal truth, okay? We talked about this last week. He uses the word everyone, no one, whoever. The implication here in this passage of Scripture is that this test, this exam, applies to every individual that walks upon the face of the earth. Remember, this is a big challenge for us because we, in our, what I would call our love for people, have slowly but surely, generation after generation after generation, have watered down the gospel and watered down what it really means to be Christians because Aunt Susie over here is, yes, she's living a very wicked and evil life, but we believe when she was six years old, she said a prayer, so she must be saved. So what happens to the gospel with that reality? All of a sudden, now the gospel has been changed, it's been altered, because Aunt Susie, who, and I hope there's no Aunt Susie's in here this morning, but Aunt Susie, who lives a wicked, ungodly, unchristlike life, we don't want to condemn her, so what we do is we bring her into the Christian fold, and now we have just made being a Christian something that being a Christian is not. I've often said, and I don't say this, I hope you'll take this the right way, because this can come across as being harsh, but I don't, I'm not trying to be harsh. But I've often said that funerals are one of the greatest disservices to the gospel, because we preach everybody into heaven. And it doesn't matter what their life was an example of. It doesn't matter what their life screamed that they were. It doesn't matter. We are going to preach them into heaven. And what we do when we do that is we slowly but surely manipulate the gospel to where the gospel is no longer the... Listen, you can't tell somebody to be a follower of Jesus Christ means you have to walk in righteousness because they know Uncle Joe, who died last year, got preached into heaven, and he was all kinds of sin. The gospel slowly gets altered and manipulated because we give in to the feelings of the flesh and not stay committed to the truths of God's word. Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, and Revelation 21 give us, each one of those passages give us a list of sins by which if somebody is living in that lifestyle is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You know what, I, I have actually heard people say to me, I can go to 1 Corinthians 6 and actually point them out. And I would say to them, are you this? And they would say, yes. And then I would say, are you saved? They would say, yes. But it says in the text of Scripture in God's Word that if this is who you are, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Right? So what is, what is true and accurate? Is it the Word of God true and accurate? Or is it a person's opinion of themselves that is true and accurate? It is the word of God. The word of God is right. The word of God speaks truth, even in spite of what we think. Unfortunately, we are a people who think highly of ourselves. And oftentimes, as Paul warns the church in Romans 12, to think soberly, to think honestly about who we are. 
especially to think soberly and honestly about who we are outside of Christ. Number two, last week, we talked about habitual sin. What's the difference between habitual sin and, and, and just sinning? And there is a difference because we all sin, but there is a, such a thing as habitual sin. And this is a sin that is a willing sin. It's a sin that we do voluntarily. It's a sin that we practice for. The word practice is used over and over in this text. It's something that we want to be good at, something that we want to master. I pray that I sin less every single day of my life. And our, our life should not be a, a greater, greater sin, greater involvement in sin, but our life as Christians ought to be somewhat moving in the direction of some victory. John says clearly in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, and then chapter 2 and verse 1, that we do sin as believers, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. So we do sin, but there's a difference between habitual sin. There's a difference between being something and doing something. He tells us in Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. So there's a difference between living in sin and falling in sin. There's a, there's a difference between enjoying sin and battling sin. There's a difference between loving sin and, and wrestling with sin. And a believer is going to do all of these things. They're going to wrestle. They're going to battle. They're, gonna, they're going to, to sin. But these people over here are going to love sin. They're going to enjoy sin. They're going to try to master sin. They're going to get better at it. Last week, here's where we ended up. What is God's attitude towards sin? Watch what he says here. He wants us to know this about sin, three things. Number one is that sin is not just stumbling, but sin is breaking God's law. Sin is lawlessness, he says. It's not just, oh, I, oh, I offended this person or I hurt this person's feelings or, or I did this, but, but sin is not as much towards how we impact people, but sinning is how we impact God. It's like David says in Psalm 51, he, he, he kills Uriah, he has an affair with Bathsheba, he does all of these things, and, and he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. What did David understand was simply that his sin was against God. It's easy to minimize sin if we just pointed at somebody, because that somebody might forgive us or whatever. But when we understand that our sin is against God and he has given us his law and when we sin, we are breaking, we are forsaking his law. So sin is not just erring. As a matter of fact, he says here, those who practice sinning, and he uses the Greek word harmatia, which means to, to err or to offend or to, 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 to fail, to, to miss the mark type of a thing. But when he uses the word, the Greek word for lawlessness, he uses the word for somebody who has a contempt for the law, somebody who's li who lives life as if there is no law or as there is no God. We need to look at our sin in light of how God views it. He says, number two, not only is, is the law come to make sin clear to us, but number two, God sent his only son to destroy sin. He says, you know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin at all. 
The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. 2,000 years ago, he, he left heaven's throne to come to this earth. And the reason he came to this earth was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. And he does it in individual people's lives. He did it in your life when he claimed you for your, himself. He began this process of destroying the works of the devil in your life. That's what he's doing. He's eradicating, he's, he's, he's imploding those things in your life that ought not to be there, that his glory might be seen in you and might be seen through you. Jesus Christ came into this world to destroy the works of the devil. And how did he do that? If you go, and, and we don't have time this morning, but 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and 57, the Bible says that the sting of sin, the sting, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, right? The law is what makes sin exposed, and what Jesus Christ did is Jesus Christ completed, accomplished, satisfied God's law in every way. He destroyed the power of sin by eradicating the law for you. It's not necessarily true about everyone, but for those who have faith in Christ, the law towards them, the Bible says, has been hung on the cross. The law has been done away with. And therefore, the, the power, and therefore, sin has lost its power over you. Sin has lost its power over you. We're all guilty of this. You, you know, you tell a little kid, a little kid walks through the sanctuary and you, you tell that little kid, don't touch that. What have you just done? You just told them to touch that, didn't you? If you would have just left them alone, they probably might not have touched that, but now that you've told them not to touch that, guess what they're gonna do? Because what the law does is the law arouses that sinfulness within us. What the Lord did is he fulfilled, he satisfied the law, he completed the law, he finished the law, he did everything to accomplish the law for us. So there is no more law against us. And because there's no law against us, we have no passion, we ought to have no passion for sin any longer. Matter of fact, in so many ways, the Lord Jesus Christ removed our spirit of rebellion and gave us a spirit of humility and submission, which is the way in which he defeats sin ultimately. He says lastly, so he sent his law to expose sin, he sent his son to destroy sin, and then he sends his, he sends his Holy Spirit to overcome sin. And so he says here in our text, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. And God's seed is the Holy Spirit. God's, God gives us his, after Christ comes and accomplishes the work of defeating sin, of overcoming Satan and sin, then he gives us his Holy Spirit, who, who begins the process of sanctifying and cleansing us of that sin that Jesus Christ has fully and satisfactorily been victorious over. You see, Jesus Christ won the battle with sin 2,000 years ago, amen? He won the battle with sin. There is no longer a conflict going on with sin with God. He won that battle. The Bible says in Genesis that he planted a, uh, a bruise on his head while he bruised his heel, a mortal bruise, a wound that would ultimately end in the, in, in the eradication of sin in the world. 
And we will experience that one day as we have a new heaven and a new earth. But where do we begin the process of experiencing that today? We begin by experiencing it in our lives. That the Lord slowly cleanses us of sin by putting his spirit within us and his spirit helps us. And the Bible says in John 14 through 16 that he is the helper, right? That's the, the main name for the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ used is the helper. He is our helper. I want you to remember this, and I'm going to go on. These, these closing thoughts are going to be very important. Remember this. Overcoming sin as a believer is not a test of your strength. Overcoming sin as a believer is not a test of your strength. It's a test of his strength. It's a test of God's strength. And not only is it a test of God's strength, but it's a test of God's presence in your life. It's not, I've heard people say over and over again, Pastor John, I know I'm a believer, but I just cannot overcome this sin. You haven't just demeaned yourself, but you have actually demeaned the one who lives within you. Right? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We are not being tested to see if we're strong enough. God doesn't want you to be so strong that you can overcome sin on your own. Amen? What's being tested is that God's in you. A a woman came to a preacher friend of mine once and asked. She was just totally confused as to whether she was saved or not saved. And she was carrying in her hand a, a large two liter of Pepsi. And this preacher was facetious, and he was kind of joking and kind of being serious, and he said this. He said, stop for a moment, and he says, if you were to eat, if you were to take that whole bottle of Pepsi and eat it right now, would you know it was in you? And she's like, well, of course. He's like, and you're going to tell me that God lives in you, and you don't know it. It's so true. The God of the universe, the one who created and sustains all things, is quote-unquote living inside of me. Right? That's what we claim. That's what our theology says. But is it what we experience in our daily life? Do we see God? Not little G-O-D, but God, capital G. Do we see his presence in our life every single day? day. Because remember, what's being proven here is God's presence in your life. And God's presence in your life is manifested by your practicing righteousness and by you loving your brother. We'll get into that whole loving your brother next week. I know you'll love that. All right, let's go on. The believer's response, okay? Overcoming sin is a cycle of response. It's a, it's a cycle of of obedience, it's a a cycle that we experience as God does a work in us, we live that work out, okay? The Bible says in 1 John 4 and verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Chapter 3 and verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So in other words, what you see connected here is that knowing God leads to somebody not continuing in sin, forsaking sin. To know God rightly is to forsake sin. To know God correctly is to turn our back on sin, to slowly be cleansed from sin. 
So God talks, starts this cycle of revealing himself to mankind, manifesting himself to us so that we might know him. And then as we grow to know him, we, we grow to love him, right? He says in 1 John 4 and verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. So what God does is when he comes to live within us, he, he loves us with an everlasting love that uh, was manifest in his son, Jesus Christ, right? And because of that, we love him in return, right? Would you guys say that you love the Lord? Shake your head. Okay, good. Now, how do we show that we love the Lord? How is that manifested through us? Anybody have a guess? We obey the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here's why you see that John is not giving a command in this text of Scripture to, to be obedient. He's saying that a natural result of loving God is that you are obedient to God. So can we not conclude as well that those who are not obedient to God either don't know God or simply don't love God? Because a natural result of Knowing God is that we love him, and a natural result of loving God is that we obey him. And this is a cycle that we go through as the Lord reveals more and more about himself to us. We grow to love him even more, right? We, go, we grow to treasure him even more. We grow to appreciate him even more. And as we grow to appreciate him even more, we grow in sinning less. So God loves us with a life-changing love. His love creates in us a love for him, and our love for him causes us to love the things that he loves. Namely, righteousness and people. To say that we love God, 1 John tells us, and we don't love our brother, we are We've deceived ourselves. We are liars, Scripture says. The love of God causes love within us. The sovereign love of God causes us to love him. And as we love him, we respond to him in obedience. Let me give you a few thoughts in closing. Remember, this is not a command but an observation. God is not saying that there are certain things you have to do to be saved. Okay? But he is saying there are certain things that you will do if you are saved. So our response to this is not to say, ah, I'm going I'm to buckle down and I'm going to do better. You've missed the point. The response is, if I am not walking in righteousness, practicing righteousness, there's a chance that I'm not saved, and my response is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith and to plead with him for salvation. So the solution is not in doing more but it is, in, it is in repentance and faith. Secondly, you'll also notice, again, as I mentioned earlier, that the main problem in the text is knowing God. So if we want to, if we want to grow in our 
love for God and grow in our obedience to God, we have to grow in our knowledge of God. John John Piper described it this way, that life is a battle of pleasures. There's there's greater pleasures and there there are lesser pleasures. And every one of us is battling which one of those we want to pursue, right? So the lesser pleasures over here would be sinful pleasures. And um, Hebrews tells us that they are pleasurable. Sins are pleasurable, okay? So don't confuse that. But they're lesser pleasures. They always have a bad result, don't they? They never satisfy, do they? The lesser pleasures always demand more. They do. So if your pleasure that you have is always demanding not satisfying or fulfilling, it's a lesser pleasure. Then there's the greater pleasures. The greater pleasures are, the, are, are seeing God for who he is. They are treasuring Christ. They are treasuring the Holy Spirit. They are treasuring God. We are either going to pursue the greater pleasure, which causes us to forsake these lesser pleasures because we have a greater pleasure, or we're going to choose to pursue these lesser pleasures at the expense of the, of the greater pleasures. Here's what we need to understand. If we're going to be victorious over sin in this life, it's going to come only by treasuring Christ more than we treasure these things. It's not going to come by buckling down and strapping on your seatbelt and saying, I'm going to buy my self-will and my self-strength. I'm going to overcome these sins. That's not the case. The issue is this. You and I don't treasure Christ enough. When you look with lust, you are valuing whatever you're looking at over and above Christ. Right? You are committing adultery as well as committing adultery. When we take on whatever, whatever it might be that is our, our temptation and our weakness and we are consumed by that, we are saying that this lesser pleasure is greater than this greater pleasure. Listen, now, I, want, I, want you to, I want you to think about this, meditate on this, we're gonna close. I want you to know this. If you're serious this morning about overcoming whatever it is that you are addicted to, I'm gonna give you the solution Here's how you can overcome whatever it is that you're wrestling with this morning. It is by seeing Christ as bigger and better than those simple things. And understanding that by choosing those things, you are proclaiming that you see Christ as lesser. It's not just choosing those pleasures. You are minimizing who Christ is. Listen, get into his word Read about him, treasure him, get to know him personally and intimately. A lot of Christians today couldn't tell you the first thing about Jesus other than the fact that he died on a tree. And that's a pretty important piece of it. But listen, there's more to him. You're not going to treasure him by just knowing facts about him. You've got to know him. You've got to embrace him. You've got to love him. If you don't, you will always be pursuing false idols. You will always be pursuing lesser pleasures at the expense of greater pleasures. What do we need to do? We need to taste and see that God is good. We need to, in the year that King Uzziah died, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 6, we need to see the Lord low, right? We need to see the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple 
We need to see the Lord for who he is. If we can see God for who he is, if we can honor God, worship God, enjoy God for who he is, all of these things will become insignificant to us. But what's happened is, is that God has taken his place down here in our minds, and our idols have taken their place up here. We've got to reverse that. And the only way to do it is by abiding. He says, those, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. We've got to abide in him. We've got to be born of him. We've got to know him. And so whatever we're wrestling with, you say, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm lost. I don't know. I have this, this sin that's just completely overcome me. Listen, you need to get close to God. You need to embrace Christ. You need to treasure him, see him as bigger. And when you do that, these things will settle themselves. There's no one that I know of who embraces Christ that's not saved. Amen? Can I get an amen? No one who, knows, who embraces Christ that's not saved. So what do we need to do this morning? We need to embrace Christ. He is bigger. He is better. He is the only way, truth, and the life.